You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Inside Healthcare. I'm your host, Dave Smolar, Senior Multimedia Specialist here at NCQA. NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance, exists to improve healthcare in America. We want to make care better for everyone. We set expectations of healthcare organizations, measure their performance, and highlight those that do well. And we use science to help us build better health and better choices for all Americans. Now, if you're a fan of this podcast or you have feedback for us, write to us at communications at ncqa.org. We look forward to hearing from you. On this episode of Inside Healthcare, we celebrate Pride Month with discussions on gender health equity, sexual orientation and gender identity healthcare quality issues, and healthcare access and representation for the LGBTQIA community. Later on, some tips on improving the provider experience for transgender patients. But first, Dr. Alex Koroglian is an expert in sex and gender-informed medicine and sexual and gender minority health care. As a psychiatrist, Dr. Koroglian's work often centers on patients suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, especially within the LGBTQIA community. They earned their MD in neurosciences at Stanford and completed their residency in psychiatry and served as chief resident at Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Koroglian is one of a number of guests on this show to earn a master's in public health, this time in health policy and management, from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. And they continue to serve these communities with their work at Mass General and Harvard Medical School. So at Mass General, a.k.a. MGH, Dr. Koroglian is director of the MGH Psychiatry Gender Identity Program and associate chief of public and community psychiatry in the MGH Department of Psychiatry. In the Harvard Medical School, HMS, they are co-director of the HMS Sexual and Gender Minority Health Equity Initiative and co-director of the HMS Advanced Integrated Science course in Sex and Gender-Informed Medicine. Dr. Koroglian is also director of the Division of Education and Training at the Fenway Institute and principal investigator of the National LGBTQIA Health Education Center, a HRSA-funded cooperative agreement to improve health care for LGBTQIA people at health centers around the country. Dr. Koroglian has won numerous awards for both psychiatric study and for their teaching. They've also co-edited the McGraw-Hill textbook, yes, there's a textbook now, Transgender and Gender Diverse Healthcare, The Fenway Guide. And if their work sounds unique and cutting edge, you're right. That's why I started off the interview asking the doctor where it all started for them. Well, as a sexually and gender diverse person myself, I had a fair bit of lived experience. And my first professional experience in this area was as a medical student in the Bay Area when I did a study on antiretroviral medication adherence and post-traumatic stress disorder among people living with HIV. So I worked with various HIV community clinics in in the Bay Area and also did an HIV psychiatry elective. And I realized I could have a whole career working with queer and trans people and people of color, which is really exciting. I didn't realize that that was a possibility. And I think that launched me on this journey toward figuring out how I could 
forge a career where that would be my primary focus. So in terms of PTSD, what are connections that you see between patients dealing with trauma, PTSD, and those individuals also dealing with issues of sexual or gender identity? It's a great question. To understand the relationship of sexual and gender diversity to post-traumatic stress, it's helpful to ground ourselves in what's referred to as a minority stress and resilience framework, sometimes referred to as a sexual and gender minority stress and resilience framework. The idea is that LGBTQI plus people chronically, developmentally, from early childhood, through adolescence, across adulthood, experience everyday discrimination, victimization, microaggressions, frank violence, unfortunately, at a much higher prevalence than the general population. And we think of all that as external stigma-related stress. And that can lead, over time, for many folks, understandably, to disruptions in certain general psychological processes like coping skills, emotional regulation, interpersonal functioning, having certain beliefs you develop that are totally understandable, but that can perpetuate distress over time, like believing it's never going to get better, nobody can be trusted, no one will ever love me, for example. And all the external stigma-related stress can lead to internal stigma-related stress, internalized homophobia, internalized transphobia, leaving all the negative things that society has to say about your sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression, expecting rejection because you're so accustomed to it, or identity concealment to prevent mistreatment or abuse. And all that external and internal stigma-related stress we think is related to what we see in the research, which is a much higher prevalence of various behavioral health problems among LGBTQI plus people, like a higher prevalence of depressive disorders, anxiety disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder, substance use disorders, sometimes as a way to cope with all this stigma and discrimination, decreased self-care, decreased engagement in healthcare, including mental health care and primary medical care in the context of a lot of well-founded medical mistrust, and down the road, much higher prevalence of various physical health problems as well. So there's this real connection between being a minoritized person the sexually or gender diverse person and the kind of stress that plays out the same way post-traumatic stress disorder can. So PTSD can lead to, can encourage these patients to just distrust medical care altogether, to, to feel that even if they go see a doctor or a clinic or whatever the problem happens to be, uh, they're not going to be listened to or respected or or treated properly. So how... What, what do you feel is the, the state of healthcare in general for SGM patients, for sexual and gender minority patients? Uh, what are the biggest challenges that, that they face, just in not just access to healthcare, but even when they have access to healthcare, in um, why, why they might not seek it out? Yeah, it's a multifaceted problem. Like you're pointing out, there are various adverse social determinants of health that negatively impact LGBTQI plus people could be familial discrimination, educational discrimination, employment discrimination, housing discrimination. People will often be socioeconomically disadvantaged in a way where they may not have health insurance in the same way that uh, cisgender straight people may in society. And if you're lucky enough to connect with health services at all, there is often a lack of training among healthcare providers in how to provide skilled, culturally responsive care for various LGBTQI plus populations. And unfortunately, even worse than that, studies have shown a trend of healthcare professionals dismissing LGBTQI plus people's identities, their health needs, people even experiencing harassment within healthcare settings. And 
anticipating that kind of rejection or mistreatment in the healthcare system is one of the primary reasons that LGBTQ plus people may not return to access care in the first place because they expect that they're going to be rejected or mistreated again in some way. So let's talk about health equity then. Um, NCQA has our health equity accreditation programs um, that we've developed and continued to improve upon and, and develop as we do with all of our measures. Uh, and part of that includes uh, adding elements of uh, SGM, of sexual and gender minority uh, focus uh, and, and, and respect that's built into some of these uh, um, some of these measures. So tell me about your work. You're co-director at Harvard of the Sexual and Gender Minority Health Equity Initiative. I'm interested in about what the initiative is, what's the definition, what's the mission, where did it come from, uh, what are your goals, what are the hope for uh, outcomes that you're working towards? Yeah, it's been a pleasure working for the last year and a half on NCQA's equity work group, specifically focused on gender-based measurement and how to incorporate that into quality measures. And NCQA is really leading the charge on that front. It's going to have a huge impact nationally by doing that. So it's been a real privilege. And I commend the sophistication and commitment with which NCQA has done that. As far as our Harvard Medical School Sexual and Gender Minority Health Equity Initiative goes, this was formalized in 2018. And the goal has been to integrate sexual and gender minority health considerations across the longitudinal four-year curriculum so that all of our medical students graduate prepared to provide excellent high-quality clinical care for sexual and gender minority people. That means incorporating sexual and gender minority health considerations into the preclinical coursework, including basic science courses, thinking about each of the principal clinical experiences or core clerkships where people rotate through surgery and neurology and internal medicine and pediatrics and OBGYN and psychiatry, for example. And then thinking about advanced courses after people have done their principal clinical experiences where they can have more in-depth, immersive, advanced medical training in sexual and gender minority health. We're also focused on the climate in which our students are learning. So it's not just the content, it's also the learning environment that's being created at the school. How inclusive, welcoming, and affirming is that for our LGBTQI plus students, for example. So we do a lot of work with student advising and with the support of our Office for Recruitment and Multicultural Affairs to create a supportive community for all LGBTQI plus students. And one of those vehicles for creating such an environment is our LGBTQI plus and allies student group that's led by very enthusiastic uh, students, particularly in their first year. And it's been a privilege for several years to be one of the faculty advisors for that student group. So I want to move on to Mass General uh, and your work with the Fenway Institute. So Fenway Institute, it's, is it, it's part of Massachusetts General, correct? Fenway is separate from Mass General Hospital. It's a federally qualified health center that was founded in 1971. So it's over 50 years old. And as part of the National Health Center program supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration's Bureau of Primary Healthcare, we see all patients regardless of ability to pay. So patients don't even need to have health insurance to be seen at Fenway. And that's true of the over 1,300 federally qualified health centers in the US and every state. Fenway is one of the special health centers nationally that has as its mission 
to provide the highest quality possible care for LGBTQI plus communities. One of the unique things about Fenway is that it has an institute within the health center, the Fenway Institute, that focuses on research, education, training, advocacy, and policy for LGBTQI plus people and people living with or at risk for HIV, including focusing on a range of health equity considerations. And for several years now, Fenway has been implementing a racial equity action plan, REAP, to make sure that we're approaching all this work with an intersectional anti-racist lens. So you were mentioning about uh, Fenway being HRSA supported. Uh, so that's that's got to be encouraging that the federal government, that some aspect of the Fed uh, is supporting gender minority rights. And and we know that they are. There's there's uh, an office uh, in uh, NIH that's that's dedicated to it. Um, and, and you also work with the National LGBTQIA plus Health Education Center. Uh, which is also HRSA supported. T- tell me what it means to you for these to be federally funded. Um, and tell me about the uh, the Health Education Center specifically. What's the, the mission? What are you trying to accomplish? Yeah, definitely. We have been really fortunate and grateful to be supported by HRSA for decades. And as it happens, our National LGBTQI plus health center, which is a national training and technical assistance partnership with the Bureau of Primary Healthcare at HRSA, has been funded since 2011. And last month, we were just refunded through 2026 to do education, training, technical assistance, capacity building across all 50 U.S. states, Washington, D.C., and Puerto Rico, focused specifically on LGBTQI plus patients and communities who've been identified as a special population by HRSA's Bureau of Primary Healthcare. We also do a lot of work through another HRSA Bureau, the HIV AIDS Bureau, that has supported us extensively to do work, for example, uh, focused on improving health for transgender women with HIV and men who have sex with men with HIV. So we've been very lucky in that way. They support many other agencies nationally. We've also been supported to do LGBTQI plus work by the CDC, and as you mentioned, by the National Institutes of Health. Just today, as it happens at Fenway, we had a learning session with Karen Parker, who's the director of the Office of Sexual and Gender Minority Research at the NIH that you were mentioning. So we work very closely with them as well. And it's really important, to your point, for the federal government to support this work. And they are funded by taxpayers, not to be crass. Many of those taxpayers are LGBTQI plus people as well. So it's, you know, taxation with representation. So our audience consists of professionals from throughout the healthcare systems. There's there's uh, community health workers, uh, there's healthcare providers, there's leadership, uh, there's doctors, nurses, all kinds of staff, uh, and researchers and, and data collectors. So uh, give me some education. Some, when you talk about training some basic fundamentals in terms of uh, facing patients and making sure that we optimize the patient experience in this case. What should we all know about uh, SGM that would help to lead to better care for patients and the uh, optimizing patient experience for LGBTQIA plus patients? Great question. There's what everybody needs to know who works within healthcare, and then there's more specialized knowledge or skills that people may need to know if they're a pediatric endocrinologist or a mental health clinician or a surgeon, for example. 
everybody, including not just clinical staff and care teams, but registration, intake, front desk, information technology, billing and financial services, executive leadership, security guards within a healthcare organization, need to understand certain foundational concepts and terminology related to gender identity, sex orientation, and sex development. They need to understand the ways in which stigma and discrimination are associated with health inequities in that minority stress and resilience framework I was mentioning earlier. Everybody needs to be trained in implicit bias mitigation towards LGBTQI plus people. Even those of us who are LGBTQI plus have internalized that kind of bias that exists in society. So there are specific skills there. Everyone needs to be trained in sensitive and effective communication, including using correct name and pronouns for everybody, not making assumptions in that regard, how to apologize if you make a mistake when communicating with a patient or with a colleague, for example, and then broadly thinking about how to build an inclusive, affirming, welcoming healthcare environment. Part of that is related to data collection, for example, collecting data on gender identity and sexual orientation in a sensitive, effective, systematic way so that we can provide patient-centered, tailored, culturally responsive, high-quality care, and so that we can conduct population health management, right? And a lot of the things that NCQA is focused on as well. How can we determine the health outcomes on certain quality measures for our LGBTQI plus subpopulations compared with the general population so that we ensure everybody is enjoying the same standard of health? It's also important to think about the physical environment, what policies, posters, brochures do you have in the clinical practice and the waiting room and the policy environment at healthcare organizations? Do you have non-discrimination laws explicitly related to sexual orientation, gender identity, and sex development, not just on the books, but known by all patients and staff and prominently posted where they know what the process is? And are you engaging community in the life of the healthcare organization? Do you have LGBTQI plus representation on your community advisory board, does your workforce reflect and represent the full diversity of all the communities that you seek to serve, including LGBTQI plus communities? So 10 years from now, where where would you like to see uh, healthcare? I, I, I don't even know how to phrase it to make it more specific and not so general, but um, how would you characterize sexual gender minority-based health 10 years from now? What What should it look like? What should you say? What should the patient experience? You have a patient who is in the know, who's in the life, and they go to the doctor. That's the first step. They go to the doctor, but they go to the doctor. What should their experience be like? And for the doctor as well, what should their experience be like? The patient should be able to go to the doctor and have full confidence that they're going to get healthcare that's just as evidence based, just as skilled, just as culturally responsive as any cisgender straight counterparts healthcare is. And the patient should have no doubt that that's going to be the case. They should also leave the doctor's office with confirmation that they received high quality, welcoming, affirming care, not just from the clinician they were seeing that day, but when they called to make the appointment, when they provided their demographic information during intake, when they walked into the building and the security guard smiled at them instead of giving them a suspicious look, when they walked up to the front desk, when the medical assistant took their vitals, and then when they were working with billing and coding around insurance reimbursement, there were no issues there. Nobody misgendered them. No one used their dead name. No one used incorrect pronouns. And 
that they enjoy the same quality of health as everybody else and proof is in the pudding in terms of their diabetes control, their mental health, and so on. From the provider's standpoint, it's really important to ensure that clinicians are confident when an LGBTQI plus person with any range of identities walks into their office, that they have been fully trained to provide care for this population, that they understand what they do in the same way that they might do for other patients and what they need to do in a different culturally responsive and technically skilled way for this patient based on their lived experience, their gender identity, sexual orientation, sex development, and other intersecting identities that they may have. Healthcare should also be data-driven, both in terms of being informed by research that would be really well-funded by the NIH, and also through population health management, where we're meaningfully looking at quality measures, have sexual orientation and gender identity data to look at outcomes for specific sexual and gender minority populations versus the general population, so that we can easily engage at the systems level in continuous quality improvement. That's hopefully where we land with healthcare in a decade from now, in addition to ensuring that we don't have any restrictions on access to evidence-based medically necessary care at the state level, which unfortunately is a battle we're fighting right now in the U.S. Dr. Alex Kuroglian, Director of the Division of Education and Training at the Fenway Institute, among other prominent positions in healthcare. We thank them for their time on this show and also for their contributions to NCQA's understanding of the needs of the LGBTQIA community, which you'll see reflected in August's release of updates to our HEDIS set of quality measures. Everyone, it's time again to focus on the place, the place that inspires and accelerates healthcare quality in America. And that place is NCQA's Health Innovation Summit. For three amazing days in October 2023, the Gaylord Palms Resort and Convention Center in Orlando, Florida will host our annual convention. Bringing together leaders from across the healthcare ecosystem, the summit will focus on all aspects of quality, including digital solutions, health equity, value-based care, and more. It will feature thought-provoking speakers, one-of-a-kind educational opportunities, and an exhibit floor showcasing the latest in healthcare and quality innovation. Register now. Go to ncqasummit.com for more. NCQA is dedicated to improving healthcare quality in order to improve the patient experience. This includes making sure that anyone needing healthcare gets access to healthcare. We expand metrics, we identify equity gaps, and we work to resolve health disparities for all populations, and that includes the LGBTQIA population. In our scientists' research, they explore data on sexual orientation and gender identity, SOGI which is sometimes referred to as SOGI data, and make sure that data are incorporated into our HEDIS measures. I'll admit I'm not the expert here. I'm no expert in the field or on this research, which is why I spoke to NCQA's Rachel Harrington, PhD, Senior Research Scientist for Health Equity. We briefly discussed the challenges facing LGBTQIA patients, from proper identification to proper respect for medical staff. So first off, I asked Dr. Harrington about the unique challenges facing the LGBTQIA plus patient population and what's historically kept them from going to the doctor in the first place. 
We know there are populations out there that for a variety of reasons, direct, you know, uh, uh, discrimination and and barriers to care, indirect, larger structural issues at the clinic level, at the system level, at the plan level. There there are barriers out there that exist that we have to respect in terms of why folks coming from different backgrounds, sexual gender minorities, you know, uh, uh, different racial and ethnic groups may or may not choose to share this information about themselves. So the very first thing you have to do is build trust, right? Like. If, if we don't have a trusted healthcare system that people know will use, will not use this information to harm them, because we have to be honest, the healthcare system has used this information to harm them in the past. You know, it, we have to create that environment first because you like, there's this risk of framing it as, oh, people aren't coming in for care. Oh, patients aren't being adherent. Oh, you know, the uh, Black or African-American members that, you know, have the worst outcomes. But but that centers the root cause in the terms of who people are. And that's not what's actually happening. The root cause is the systems and structures and society that we live in. And it's our responsibility to intervene on that the ways that we can as a quality organization. There is a risk in oversimplifying it that potentially puts the burden back on people and not on the systems and structures that are really at fault and that really need the intervention to make this work better. So go, tell me what is SOGI and and how do you how are you using SOGI as a as a term? Yeah, so SOGI is an acronym stands for sexual orientation and gender identity and it's a really frequently used term to describe the types of data, the data elements, the the sort of diversity that you see in populations who, you know, represent different uh, different sexual orientations, genders, the LGBTQ plus population. So we talk about SOGI a lot in, in the quality space because we're thinking about how sexual orientation and gender identity are incorporated into our standards, the types of services that um, are targeted for, build on, or evaluate based on sexual orientation and gender identity. And we also use it as, as a term a lot in our measurement work, because there we're really focused on specific variables, specific ways of defining populations that can make sure that one, we're having inclusive approaches to healthcare. Two, we're making sure everybody who needs care gets care. And three, we can evaluate where there are disparities in care. So SOGI as a construct is really describing the sexual orientation, gender identity data and, and the way that we we sort of describe that data as a way of grappling with these larger population health elements. So in terms of improving gender equity, mm-hmm. and, and forgive me if that's a minimalist version of the term or minimalist kind of, but yeah. in terms of gender, because it's one of the types of equity that we talk about, that we've talked about on this show. We've talked about birth equity and racial equity. Uh, so in terms of gender equity, Obviously, there are disparities. Give me examples of some of the obstacles, some of the challenges that are out there in terms of um, that are creating these disparities right now. Yeah, for sure. So I, I think gender equity is a fair phrase to use. We just have to think about gender in a more inclusive and broad way than maybe we did 10 or 15 years ago. Right. So when we think about gender and and equity now, we're also specifically thinking about transgender individuals, 
uh, folks whose gender identity and sort of clinical sex characteristics may not um, line up or, or match with what we would have sort of clinically expected in, in the past. And we're evolving as a healthcare system to be able to recognize this distinction and to make sure that you know, for transgender, gender diverse folks, that they're not experiencing disparities to care that they need. A really good example of this, and one of the first areas we focused on was around um, cancer screening, breast and cervical cancer screening. Cervical cancer, if you think about this, if you have a cervix, you're at risk for cervical cancer. You should be screened for cervical cancer. You should have access to the treatments and the support that, that's available there. Um, but for transgender men who might have a cervix, the way that our guidelines are constructed, the way that our clinical care is constructed, the way that OBGYN care is set up, those individuals may not be receiving the flyers reminding them to come in and get screened and, and get you know pap smears, things like that. They may not uh, have the ease of access. They might have to sort of go back and forth with their insurance to see what things are covered, what things aren't covered. You know, it might not be a conversation that their providers are having with them on a regular basis. So when we're thinking about equity and gender now, we're really thinking about it in this broader way, recognizing that regardless of your identity, if you have the need for a certain type of care, you should have access to that care. It should be high quality care and your outcomes should match and exceed and, and achieve your best possible health. Tell me what best possible health looks like in terms of gender equity. We need to start thinking about care in terms of clinically what people need instead of using assumptions and proxies to think we know what people need. Like I was saying, if you have a cervix, you get cervical cancer screening. And, and we know what that looks like. We have best practices for care, for screening, for intervention there. So when we talk about what does best possible care look like in gender equity, it's that truly, regardless of the gender that you identify as and the gender that represents who you are, that you're getting the clinical care that is recommended for you based on the body that you have, the, the experiences that you have, and the, the needs that you have. I want to ask you about labels, about mm -hmm. demographic labels. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, this is something that we had uh, one or two guests who talked about uh, racial equity for different mm -hmm. aspects, um, uh, talking about Native American groups. Yeah. who are mislabeled or under labeled really as it is um and saying look if you can't do a study where you accurately can uh measure how a certain population group is doing or who's affected by a certain condition uh, etc then uh it's more difficult for us to be able to take those evaluations and to identify disparities so uh do we have a challenge with this community in terms of population health when it comes to really carefully, accurately identifying specific uh, labels that should be used in forms uh, yeah. at, at the doctor's office, for example? There is. And I think there are a lot of lessons that can be shared from these spaces, right? And also, like, we shouldn't assume that they're entirely separate, right? Every Every person... No one person is one checkbox. We're all different things. So these issues of how we identify, how we're represented in data, 
apply across the board. But but I think there are some unique parallels there um, in, in two ways. One, in terms of whether this information is being captured in a responsible um, sort of community-informed and, and trusted way. So the same way that American Indian and Alaska Native populations might be um, undercounted or or not represented in certain data or not feel comfortable having those conversations with their healthcare providers in terms of how that impacts their their care and their interactions with the healthcare system. Same thing for the LGBTQ plus population, which is what we're sort of representing when we talk about SOGI, SOGI data. Um, so it's the collection of the data, period. Is it being collected and is it being collected in a way that recognizes the nuance there that gender and sex are two separate things, that sexual orientation and gender identity are two separate things and need to be thought about separately? Um, And then sort of adding on to that, are we thinking about the categories in a way that centers the communities and how they identify and not imposing assumptions or category labels or expectations onto it. And there, there's not a perfect answer to that, right? It, the, the LGBTQ community is a diverse and beautiful community and one that has a bunch of different opinions on how to be represented and how to be identified. And so that's something that the data grapples with too. You know, how many categories do you have? How do you label the categories? How do you allow people to identify themselves without creating an other box, which is by definition othering and like not not the ideal here? So there are a lot of efforts working on this. There are efforts in the the health informatics digital standards space. There are efforts coming out of the National Academies of, of, of Medicine, sort of looking at it from the more conceptual space and how this is handled in things like our public health surveys. So there's a lot of good work coming here. Um, And I think for us, the important thing is when we're thinking about our quality space, reflecting the best practices that are out there, building on good clinical data sources and the standards that are there so that we're, we're capturing all of this through standardized, accessible information, and also keeping an eye on the future because none of this is static. We are evolving as a society and we need to be prepared to adapt. So tell me about improving care management and and quality improvement. That's NCQA. That's the Mm -hmm. the Q for NCQA is quality improvement. So what is NCQA doing? What is your your group doing uh, to to try to bridge the gaps, the diversity gaps, and improve quality uh, in healthcare um, for these populations? Yeah. So our health equity standards, our health equity accreditation, for example, has incorporated this for the last couple of years in terms of you know, requiring collection of sexual orientation and gender identity data, requiring it collected in a way that's aligned with some of those best practices I was just talking about in terms of clinical data, in terms of recommendations from the national academies. Um, and then using that, because that, that's the key. You can collect the data all you want. If you're not using it to inform care, to inform quality improvement, then there's no point in collecting it, right? Like you're just storing it in a computer somewhere and it's not going anywhere. So the the health equity accreditation standards also have this requirement of using sexual orientation, gender identity information to evaluate for disparities and to target interventions to address those disparities. On the measurement side, we actually have a couple of really interesting updates. Um, 
planned for the next release of HEDIS around inclusive approaches to measurement. Um, if last year, uh, the, the last HEDIS volume measurement year, 2023, we started down that path. We started looking at our language around pregnancy and how we define pregnancy and HEDIS and saying, you know what? It's not just women who get pregnant. If you have a delivery, you were pregnant, you should be considered in, in this way. We're expanding on that this year by looking at HEDIS measures that use gendered language in how they define who is eligible for the measure, how, how we define who is eligible for that high quality care, who should expect that high quality care. We have a set of measures that use phrases like among women 45 and older. Well, for breast cancer screening, for example, it, it matters if you have a clinical need and are recommended for routine screening. You may not be a woman when it comes to your gender, but if you're at risk for breast cancer and the task force guidelines or the American College of, of Oncology says you're at risk, you should be screened, you should be screened. And so we did this whole project to revamp how we define our eligible populations to use better clinical data elements, better standardized clinical data elements, things like um, uh, sex for uh, parameters for clinical use or sex assigned at birth, which is an imperfect proxy, but a better proxy than, you know, nothing to expand those definitions. So now for breast and cervical cancer screening, we are more, we are focused on if you need this care, if you are recommended for screening, you are eligible for this measure. You should have the same high quality outcomes as anybody else. Talk to a doctor, a physician, somebody mm -hmm. in the hospital, a hospital worker who has not had necessarily any training mm -hmm. uh, in talking to um a, a patient with a specific gender identity or with a gender fluidity mm -hmm. uh, or somebody who's going through transition. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't necessarily have a label um, and talk to them. Tell me wh what would you tell them in terms of honestly, when you first walk in the door, what do you think you should do in the first two minutes of facing a patient uh, in that situation? Oh gosh. I think what so much of it comes down to is respect and trust. Respecting that this is part of identity and it's an important part of identity and that meeting your patients where they are and respecting them as who they are is central to a clinician patient relationship, regardless of what, what we're talking about. Also trust when you're asking a patient to share information like that with you, valuing that information, making sure that you're thinking about it and using it in ways that are there to help the patient and not applying, you know, assumptions or, or sort of external ideas to that. Um, I think on top of that, you know, there's this sensitivity about asking for, for information like this. Um, you know, and pronouns or, you know, talking about sexual orientation, talking about gender and transition and fluidity. And I would say there, there's a body of research out there that is pretty clearly defined that while there are very legitimate reasons why patients might feel uncomfortable sharing that information, frequently the provider is more uncomfortable asking than the patient is sharing. 
patients get that this information can be important for their care. They want to bring their full selves to their to their healthcare interactions. And so don't let, you know, it's challenging. We're all human. We're all grappling with, with how to, to, you know, be in different situations. But don't let your own discomfort get in the way of the care that you're providing or the experience that the patient has. Is there anything else that you want to throw in there or? Stay tuned for HEDIS Measurement Year 2024. We're really excited to, to launch some of these changes. NCQA Senior Research Scientist for Health Equity, Dr. Rachel Harrington. Keep checking our blog for equity-related updates to our HEDIS measures. The new changes drop in August, so stay tuned. Time again for our Fast Facts segment, giving you important bits of info to supplement your higher health education. We continue our celebration of the Pride Month of June with important information vital to the transgender community. The CDC recommends checking out the website for the world's oldest and largest association for LGBTQIA professionals, GLMA, Health Professionals Advancing LGBTQ Equality. In observance of Pride Month, the CDC points to the GLMA's top 10 things transgender people should discuss with their healthcare provider. Even if you're not a transgender patient, this list may still apply to someone you know, or someone you'll meet, someone you work with, or someone you'll care for, either professionally or personally. The list includes health history. You need to be able to trust your healthcare provider. Patients should work with their doctor to catalog and chronicle all treatments and surgeries in their medical history. Cancer. While it's rare, very rare, to develop cancer just from hormone treatment, providers should discuss cancers that a patient might be prone to, due to other treatments or surgeries, or due to genetic predisposition. Sexually transmitted infections, STIs, and HIV. Regular screening for STIs is important to your health and the health of your sex partners. Sexually active people should be screened every three to six months. Pharmaceuticals can improve and prolong the health of people living with HIV, and taking pre-exposure prophylaxis, known as PrEP, is an effective way to almost eliminate the chance of contracting HIV in the first place. Now, injectable silicone is on the list. Some transgender women may choose to inject silicone or other fillers to change the shape of their body, but silicone sold and injected by non-medical persons may be off-market and contaminated, rendering them hazardous to your health. Patients should discuss with a doctor the safest and most effective ways of achieving their physical changes. Other things to consider for discussion that are on the list, access to health care, gender-affirming hormone treatment, cardiovascular health, alcohol and tobacco use and abuse, depression, and fitness, including diet and exercise. As we've heard on this episode, discussing these things with a doctor helps build trust between doctor and patient. And while some patients are concerned about discussing private details with a doctor, it's likely that nowadays, doctors are also worried about asking the wrong question or using the wrong terminology in front of a patient. So feel free to explore more LGBTQIA plus healthcare resources offered by places like the CDC, NHI, and the Fenway Institute. 
As we do on each episode of Inside Healthcare, we ask you now for your thoughts on today's show. Email us at communications at ncqa.org anytime, and be sure to include Inside Healthcare in the subject line. Now, if you're coming up empty and something to say, here's a question for this episode. What are three things a clinician can do to demonstrate respect for a patient? Think about it. And then tell us about it. And if you have a comment, a suggestion, an idea for a guest on our show, maybe you'd like to be the guest, just email us and let us know. Communications at ncqa.org. And be sure to write Inside Healthcare in the subject line. Hope to hear from you soon. That's it for episode 108 of NCQA's award-winning Inside Healthcare podcast. Thanks for joining us. This episode's done, but there are plenty more that came before for you to explore and investigate. You can find us at blog.ncqa.org or find us on any Apple or Google streaming app. Whether you download the show or you stream it, if you find us, follow us. And spread the word. Help us build our audience by letting others know about NCQA's work. If you haven't done so already, connect with NCQA on LinkedIn and Twitter and you'll get video promos for this show to share with your friends and colleagues. And as always, we thank you, our loyal listener, for helping our audience continue to grow. On behalf of our award-winning NCQA communications team, I'm Dave Smolar. We'll see you again, no doubt. You've been listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast brought to you by NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Inside Healthcare is available on your computer or mobile device through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on our blog at blog.ncqa.org forward slash podcast. <laughs>